We are in a series that we started last week called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And in this series, really what we're doing is looking at some, some rather popular sayings and beliefs that are so often held up as Scripture, but really aren't Scripture. Things that may sound biblical, things that we may desperately want to be biblical, things that may even have some biblical truth in them, but the reality is the Bible just doesn't say that. I came across a story not too long ago that was talking about how easily our minds can be deceived, and specifically it talked about how people, many people can't actually tell the difference, or at least much of a difference, between uh, what is more expensive and what is less expensive when it comes to what we eat and drink, and how easily our minds can be deceived just by the packaging that the food or drink is in. And in particular, the story talked about good wine versus cheap wine. And what they said is that people don't have nearly as much knowledge as they think they do. And they referenced a guy by the name of David Shulman, who's involved in the wine industry in Napa Valley. And he wrote a book called 99 Bottles of Wine. And he was interviewed on National Public Radio on how to sell wine. And he said, it's all in the packaging. People will consistently pay much more than a bottle of wine bottle of wine is actually worth if you just put gold foil on it and fancy lettering and give it a nice tactile touch. You will trick people into thinking wine is much better than it really is. And it goes even beyond just the look. So they did this research where they put a $5, they took a $5 bottle of wine and a $90 bottle of wine and they put them on a table in front of different taste testers with two cups. And they didn't tell them which bottle of wine was the night. Well, they actually, they did. They told them that the, this was the $90 bottle of wine and this is a $5 bottle uh, of wine. And, uh, and so they poured the contents into, the, into each cup and let the taste testers uh, choose which wine tasted better, knowing which was which. And consistently, the people said that the more expensive wine tasted better. And they weren't just saying that. Their brain was telling them that because the pleasure centers in their brain were more active when they drank the wine from the more expensive bottle. But here's the trick. They had poured $5 wine into both bottles. They were drinking the exact same wine, but the brain was telling them one was much better than the other. So what's the point? Well, here's the point. I said last week that we often underestimate our capacity to overestimate ourselves. And this is especially true when it comes to our capacity to discern deception. We're not nearly as smart as we think we are. We will think something has more value just because it looks like it does. And we will think something is more true just because it sounds like it is. And many things sound true that are just not in the Bible. In fact, some are not just non-biblical, but they are unbiblical. And so next week, we're going to consider the popular phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that actually in the Bible? And in two weeks, we're going to take on one of the most popular maxims of all, everything happens for a reason. Really? Does the Bible actually say that? You see, we say things like this and, and others to, to encourage people who are going through a tough season, but is what we're telling them actually 
biblical. And here's another thing we like to say when people are in a tough place. Just remember, God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. Reminds me of the story I heard about this one guy who would always bring a, a box of donuts into work for him and his co-workers. That is until he went to the doctor and his doctor told him that he really needed to, to cut back on his sweets. And so the next day at work, he let his co-workers know that he would not be bringing in donuts for the foreseeable future, you know, because his doctor told him that he needed to cut out sweets. And so his co-workers were surprised when just a couple of days later, this man came into the office with a big box of donuts. And one of his co-workers said to him, he said, I, I thought the doctor told you to stop eating sweets. And the guy said, oh, he did. But you know, the donut shop is on my way to work. And as I was coming here this morning, I saw the sign in the window that said, fresh, hot, Donuts, And I prayed, Lord, if you want me to stop and buy some donuts, then let there be an empty parking spot right in front of that store. And you're not going to believe this, but the seventh time around the block, there that parking space was. And I think it's kind of comforting for us to believe that God has our future so meticulously planned out like that. Maybe not exactly like that story, but so meticulously planned out. But is that in the Bible? Now, some of you may, th may be thinking, okay, well, you know, last week, Josh, you said that, you know, follow your heart. We talked about follow your heart and how that's not in the Bible. And, and I get that. But I know the Bible says God has a plan for your life because I've got a verse, a Bible verse on a coffee mug that I bought at a Christian bookstore. So it must be true. And here's what's probably the verse that's on your mug. It's from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And it says this, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So four times God says you. So I think it's important to know who is you. You see, God is speaking to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah all through that book, warning them of upcoming captivity because of their sin and their rebellion. But God also reminds them that even though they haven't kept the covenant, he will. And that captivity they are about to experience will not last forever. And so look at the verse right in front of the verse that's on your coffee mug, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. And so God is reaffirming his covenant, not because they have been good, but because he is good. And if you read your Old Testament, you'll know that after 70 years of Babylonian captivity, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and King Cyrus of Persia let the Jews, let Israel go home, just like God had prophesied through Jeremiah 70 years earlier. So what can we take from this verse? Well, I think we can, uh, what we can apply to, to ourselves and to our lives is confidence in the truth that God is faithful. He is faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises. He's, he's trustworthy. But, but it is a big jump to go from a national promise to Israel to a personal expectation that God has my future all mapped out. So here's kind of the issue in, in our thinking, in our theology. There's, there's kind of two ideas at work. First, you've got the idea of the sovereignty of God and the reality that God is in control. 
Uh, on the flip side, you've got the idea of, of the free will of man and the reality that our choices have consequences. And, and both of those are biblical truths and, and ideas. I mean, no matter how much you believe in the sovereignty of God, you're going to look both ways before you cross the street. And you're going to teach your children that their choices matter. And no matter how much you believe in the free will of man, when life goes crazy, you comfort yourself with the knowledge that God is still on the throne. And so we all live believing in both, and we should. The problem becomes when you take either theology to the extreme. In particular, when people start saying, well, God is on the throne and he's ordered and structured and mapped out every detail so that all of life happens just like God wants it to. And when you go that far, you have basically erased free will from people and you've just made God responsible for all the evil in the world. All the countless evils and bad things that are happening in our world, they're all happening and people are going through those things because that's what God scripted to happen. And I don't think we want to go there. In fact, I beg you, if you're ever talking to someone who, who has just lost a loved one or someone who is suffering through some injustice or someone who is just going through an incredibly difficult time, please Please do not say, well, I know this is hard, but you just have to accept God's plan for your life. Please do not say that. Now, I do grant that there are times, certain moments in the Bible when God does seem to have a very particular calling for a particular person. So how can I know if God has scripted a particular call for me and for my life? Well, if you're walking in a field and you see a bush, and it's burning, but it's not burning up, and it starts to talk to you, then my guess is that God probably has a very specific purpose for your life. If you're walking down a road, and there's a bright light, and a voice speaks to you, and it's Jesus, and you're blind for three days, you can probably assume that God has a very specific plan and purpose for your life. But most of us are going to live with more options and less clarity. Because, and I know this is not going to be a, a perfect analogy, but I, I want to give you an analogy to maybe think through that helps us kind of process this. Again, it's not perfect, but hopefully it helps. I see God more as a football coach and less like a builder. I, I see God more like a football coach and less like a builder. Let me explain. You see, the builder is building something. And he's got a blueprint and he is meticulously studying every detail because you can't get a detail wrong on a blueprint or the whole plan is messed up, right? On the other hand, a football coach has a game plan. And in the, inside that game plan are lots of ways that he is scripted for his team to respond depending on what the other team is doing so that he can reach the ultimate goal, which is to win the game. Now, which of those two is the best illustration of how God operates in the world? And you might think it would be more comforting to know that God is working off of a blueprint for your life, but I want to challenge that idea. For one thing, that blueprint model, it makes knowledge more important than obedience. 
and makes knowledge more important than obedience. And obviously that's not the case. Obedience is way more important than knowledge. But if God's plan for your life is, is a blueprint, then, then you must not move until you get clarity. You can't do anything for fear that you might do the wrong thing and mess up the whole plan. But the Bible does not emphasize clarity nearly as much as it emphasizes obedience. And most of the heroes in the Bible experience great challenges and even great setbacks with very little understanding. And you can start with the first book in the Bible, Genesis. Noah is told to build a boat, but he's never even seen a flood. Even more mysterious is Abraham being told to offer his son Isaac to God as a sacrifice when Isaac, his son, is the son of promise. Even more mysterious than that is Joseph who won't compromise his sexual purity and sleep with a woman of influence and he winds up thrown in prison and he hasn't heard a word from God and he has no clue what the future holds. But all of these people are held up as heroes of faith because they did what was right and they obeyed God, even though they didn't understand what the future would hold. It was Mother Teresa who once said, I never had clarity from God. I just had trust in God. And the reality is that many of the details that we fret about in the future are not nearly as important to God as being obedient today. And the irony is that it is the path of obedience that actually leads to more clarity. Now, here's what the psalmist says in, in Psalms chapter uh, 111, verses 7 and 8. He says, all God does is just and good, and all his commandments are trustworthy. They are forever true, to be obeyed faithfully and with integrity. And then verse 10, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commandments will grow in wisdom. And so it's not, okay, God, give me more understanding, and then I'll follow you. Instead, the Bible says, Follow God and you'll get more understanding because faith always calls for obedience in the face of a future where you don't know the outcome. Here, here's another problem I have with the blueprint model. It makes God seem like a control freak. Now, I absolutely affirm, and I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I absolutely affirm the sovereignty of God, but I don't believe that means that God must be you know, a micromanager. In fact, this depiction of God that I do not think is in the Bible has caused many people to be angry at the God of the Bible. I mean, just think with me. You know, we say, I got married. I'm, I'm so thankful for God's plan. We're, we're pregnant. I, I, you know, praise God for his plan. I, I got that great new job because of God's Plan. My cancer is gone because God has a plan for my life. And those are all great things. But what did you just say to the precious, faithful, young, single man or woman? What does that say to the godly young couple that can't get pregnant? To the faithful brother or sister who just lost their job? Or to the brother or sister who's stage four cancer is not going away. I believe that God in his sovereignty still allows all of us to experience the fallenness of this world, that rain falls on the just and the unjust. 
I also believe that God in his sovereignty gives us, dignifies us with the capacity to make choices, choices that have real consequences. And this, in fact, is one of the greatest evidences for his love for us. And parents, you know, we, we as parents get this because you moms and dads, you know, know that you do not love your children by taking away all the freedoms of your children. A good father directs the steps of his kids, but he does not dictate those steps because he's got his eyes on the big picture. Who are his children choosing to become? And we have a good, good father. And he's not a control freak. He's not a dictator dad. He's not a micromanager but he does have a game plan that no circumstance or tactic of the enemy can frustrate. And so I'm sure many of us are familiar with the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, We know that in everything God works for the good of those who love him. They are the people he called because that was his plan. Everything that happens is not good. But God can work good in everything. He can call audibles. He can run new plays. It doesn't matter what the enemy is throwing at you. God can and will work. His plan can and will handle it because God is keeping his eye on the big win. And what is the win to God? Look at the very next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. God knew them before he made the world and he chose them to be like his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. It's not that God has a macro plan for each of us, or excuse me, it's not that God has a micro plan for each of us, but God has a macro plan for all of us to be more like Jesus because God's plan is to make a big deal out of his son. And that leads me to probably my biggest problem with the blueprint model. And it's this, it makes you the star of the story. It makes you and me the star of the story. The reason blueprint theology survives in our culture is because our culture bows down to the ideal and the idol of individualism. The idol that tells every worshiper how special they are. And you are valued and loved, but it, it kind of elevates each and every person to, to a status that, that God in the Bible doesn't really do. And God has a plan for your life, appeals to that fallen part of my nature that wants life to make a big deal out of me. But the reality is I'm not the star of God's story. And we need to be aware, very aware of those brands of discipleship that focus on you. You know, we live in a culture that worships consumerism. And sadly, the easiest way to grow a church in America is to make the customer happy. And so churches market themselves, you know, we're, we're the church with you in mind. Look at these great programs we've designed for you. Look at all the events that we'll make uh, that, that you will enjoy because it's all about you. A simple way to illustrate this is by this question. What is the single way most Christians evaluate a worship service? What is the single most way Christians most evaluate a worship service? They ask, what did I get out of it? What did I get out of it? 
something is very wrong when we leave a church asking, what did I get out of it? Instead of what did I put into it to honor God? Because the story is not about you. And the unappreciated and perhaps even unpopular truth is that Christianity for most of us, for most of our lives, is just the daily grind of trying to be more like Jesus in small, inconspicuous, unapplauded ways. It's being more patient in the line at the grocery store that's going too slow. It's listening well to that person telling you the story that they could have finished like 15 minutes ago. It's saying a kind word to someone who probably forget it a minute later. It's not getting angry at the person on the road who isn't driving the way you wish they would. That's a tough one for me. It's making sure your neighbor has a hot meal because the mother is sick. It's forgiving quickly even though they don't deserve it. It's serving over and over and over and over again to people who never say thank you. Discipleship is doing a whole lot of stuff that never winds up in the credits because God's plan is not for me to be the star. It's for me to imitate the star. He makes it very clear in the next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. God planned for them to be like his son. And so God doesn't care so much where you were but how you work. Not so much where you live, but how you live. Not so much if you get married, but how you treat the person you marry if you do. Because a good father focuses on who his kids are becoming. And so the big deal to God is for us to live lives that make a big deal out of Jesus. And I may not have a lot of clarity about what my future holds, but whatever the future holds, I'm going to make Jesus look good because that's God's plan. Because Jesus is the plan. He's the one person who had a specific plan for his life that revealed God's great plan for every life. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God is in control. God is on the throne. There is a creation in rebellion. There is an enemy to be overthrown. And let me tell you, God is going to work out his plan. And the day is going to come when every knee is going to bow, when every molecule of his creation is going to submit to the reign and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the plan. And as evidence of his great love, God has invited you and me to partner with him in his plan. 
And there are so many ways that you can partner with God. There are many paths that you can choose, but they all have the same destination, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Because Jesus is the plan. So live on purpose. Live on purpose. And tomorrow might bring cancer or it might bring healing from cancer. It might bring a job or it might mean you lose your job. We don't have clarity about tomorrow, but we do have a purpose that we can pursue no matter what the future may hold. And let me tell you, most of what's going to happen tomorrow is probably gonna be small because you and I are not the star of the story. We're the extras in the story. But just because what you do may seem to go unnoticed, that does not mean it is unimportant. Just recently, I read a book called Monuments Men. It's also a movie. I haven't seen the movie, but I have read the book. And it tells the story, the true story, of how uh, when the Nazis took over Europe, they began to steal millions of dollars in precious history and, and art and, and, and other artifacts. And there was an art historian and uh, aficionado and really enthusiast in Paris, France by the name of Rose Vallon, who didn't know what she could do uh, in, in enemy occupied territory, but she hated what was happening. And so she just began to make a catalog of all the stolen art. 20,000 pieces of art she, she, she cataloged and she kept meticulous records, just trying her best to keep track of each and every piece, even going undercover at one point within the Nazi regime to try and track where all of this art was going, not knowing if it would ever matter, not thinking anyone would ever notice. And then one day, an American by the name of James Rorimer showed up. And because day after day after day, she was just faithful doing something that seemed so small and unimportant, countless pieces of art and history were saved. And what was wrong was set right. Listen, Jesus is coming back and the enemy will be defeated. And all those small unnoticed, unapplauded ways that you tried to be like Jesus will matter. And he will look at you and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can plan on it.